Our reading this morning is from the Christian source of our faith, from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It's a story that's familiar to many of us, which is why it's good to always hear it again. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was walking down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. It was my first college class. Looking around, I noticed who the freshmen were. We glowed with this type of glee and naive anticipation, like this moment would be the one to change the rest of our lives. And I could tell who the upperclassmen students were, too. They seemed so confident, like they already knew everything the teacher was going to cover, like they were the person I was to become. So imagine my self-conscious state when the teacher asked us to go around the room and introduce ourselves, and the upper-class student sitting sitting next to me nearly rolled her eyes before asking, can everyone state their preferred pronouns, too? (laughs) My eyes bulged. I looked down at my desk to hide my bewilderment. My mind searched the notes of my high school grammar lessons to remember what a pronoun was? (laughs) Preferred pronouns? What did she mean anyways? I wasn't the only one, because the professor paused, then asked the upper-class student to explain what she meant and why it was important. The student first reminded all of us lowly underclass students what a pronoun was. (laughs) He, she, they, it, etc., And she went on to explain how using pronouns is one way we gender people. In other words, one way we state what gender we believe the person we're talking to is, often unconsciously. 
and that some people in our world don't identify with the gender we see them as inhabiting. So it's not always safe to assume that the person with short hair, defined jawbone, dressed in a button-up shirt and khakis and brown suede shoes identifies as a man. Having everyone share their pronouns out loud allows us to define ourselves. This practice also allows us to share pronouns that might not be familiar to everyone. We often think of he and she as the only singular pronouns, but some people don't fit within strict female and male identities that he and she denote. They prefer it, z, g, and many, many more. So, at the suggestion of the upper-class student, we went around the room and shared our preferred pronouns. Hi, my name is Bethany. I prefer she, her, and hers. This was the first time I was exposed to this practice, but definitely not the last. I've since learned that that Bagley, the Boston area gay and lesbian youth organization, has the group share their preferred pronouns at the beginning of each of their weekly meetings. This gives queer youth, some of who change their preferred pronouns every week, a safe space to tell their peers how to identify them at that particular point in time. And it assumes that they might change this over time. And though this is a regular practice in the introduction phase of many of my church and social communities, I'm not always good at asking people how they identify outside of this exercise. It's a little awkward. And as a cisgender woman, meaning identify with the agenda I was assigned at birth, how do I tell if someone is transitioning from one gender to another? How do I tell if someone doesn't feel the gender I think they are expressing? How do I interpret gender in the first place? How do I ask someone, what gender do you identify with? It gets really complicated. But it's more complicated when I don't ask. Having not asked a group to share their preferred pronouns before, then proceeding to use the wrong pronoun for someone twice, I can tell you from experience that it's much more complicated and hurtful when we don't ask. We end up apologizing a lot and feeling guilty, not being sure how to repair a relationship. Because something like gender, something that is so essential to how the world identifies us, that's really important. So it's important, I think, that we try to get it right. Now, as someone who was born female and has continued to dress, talk, and appear within that stereotypical, stereotypical confines, For most of my life, I have no idea how it feels to be misgendered. No one has ever called me he to my face. Many of us can't know what this feels like, but also many of us do know what this feels like. So if we want to stay in relationship with friends and family and neighbors who identify outside our society's strict definitions of man and woman, we have to find ways to see the world through their eyes. We have to take that brave step of asking how we can support them, even if it means using a different pronoun than we usually would. This is the role of an ally. An ally as in someone who is part of a dominant group finding ways to support those of an oppressed group. A man sticking up for a woman, a white person marching with people of color, a heterosexual person standing side by side with queer couples in their fight for marriage equality. 
someone from the dominant group supporting someone from an oppressed community. As a Unitarian Universalist, trying to be an ally is part of my spiritual responsibility in this world. We often say that we are called to stand on the side of the oppressed. It's part of our second covenantal principle of our communities, justice, equality, compassion, and human relations, all human relations. This means that those of us who do not feel the pressures of injustice have to put a little extra effort to support those who are being oppressed because we are being privileged. There's a lot there. I'll say it again. Those of us who do not feel the pressures of injustice have to put in an extra effort to support those who are being oppressed because we are being privileged. Our culture was made so that white, Christian, straight, married, cisgendered men can navigate our world most easily. It helps if they also have advanced degrees, good-paying jobs, and stable housing. So those of us whose identity falls out these, outside of these privileged groups, people of color, non-Christians, queer people, women, have a more difficult time getting by in this culture. It sometimes feels like this world wasn't made for us. And it's possible to inhabit both privileged and oppressed identities. I do it. Many of us do it. So our job is to examine ourselves and begin to see the ways in which our culture was tailor-made for us. We can begin to see that the ways that people who are different from us have a harder time. We can begin to ask how we can help those folks. And this is part of being an ally, too. This is part of building bridges between those who have social power and those who do not. This is part of reaching beloved community. One of the songs our choir often sings reminds me of what it means to be an ally. Some of you might recognize the lyrics. It's from Sweet Honey in the Rock, a performance ensemble rooted in African-American history and culture. And the lyrics go like this. Would I harbor you? Would you harbor me? Would I harbor you? Would you harbor a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a heretic, convict, or spy? Would you harbor a runaway woman or child, a poet, a prophet, a king? Would you harbor an exile or a refugee? a person living with AIDS? Would you harbor harbor a Tubman, a Garrett, a Truth, a fugitive, or a slave? Would you harbor a Haitian, Korean, or Czech, a lesbian, or a gay? Would you harbor me? Would I harbor you? Would you harbor me? Would I harbor you? This word, harbor, we can use it as a verb or a noun. As a verb, it comes from the German word horborgian, meaning occupy shelter. As a noun, we think of a contained area which holds boats, keeps them safe from the storms of the sea. Occupy shelter, a place to keep safe from the storm. Those of us who are part of a dominant culture 
Our spiritual responsibility as allies is to offer harbor to people who are weathering the storms of life. The Samaritan, in our reading this morning, was that harbor. He was the one who crossed the road, gave ointment, took the man to safety, and supported him while he healed. The Samaritan was a harbor for this beaten-down man. What made the Samaritan do this? Where did this instinct come from? We are led to believe by Jesus' placement of the Levite and the priest in the parable that this action on the part of the Samaritan might not have come from the moral code of Jesus' time. The action came from a particular experience of that Samaritan. We know the Samaritan was a stranger in the land, one who was often ostracized by those living in Israel. He was a day laborer, one who came to the area when there was work to be done and went back to his land in the off-season. He was a stranger in Israel, and he knew what it felt like to have a hard time navigating the culture around him, to feel different, to feel less privileged, to be thought of as less than, to be oppressed. So what about this Samaritan's experience prepared him to help the man left in the ditch? Maybe the Samaritan saw some of himself in that beaten-down man. His own experience in a foreign land gave him a special eye to see what others did not. As a day laborer, he had been oppressed by the people in Israel. He knew the pains of being beaten down by the world around him. So though the Samaritan walked down that road without scars on his body, he saw someone with scars that bore resemblance to the ones he held within. So he went out of his way to help the one with scars. He did not hesitate because he saw some of himself in that ditch. He saw a life worth saving. He saw someone who needed harbor, who needed an ally. So he was called to care for that man in the ditch. What would it take for us to be the Samaritan in our communities? What would it look like or sound like for us to go out of our way to comfort the afflicted? And where do we tap into that motivation to help those who are being oppressed? That last question is important and equally challenging. It means we have to confront the ways in which this world has hurt us. It means reaching deep to remember a moment or time when you did not fit in or feel welcome? Where do we tap in to that motivation to help those who are being oppressed? This moment, whatever you are thinking of, is the source of you becoming an ally. This moment puts us in touch with a time when we did not feel welcome. It allows us to give others what we would have needed in that moment. It allows us to be Unitarian Universalists in every moment. Being an ally can be as simple as using gender-neutral pronouns, like they, them, and theirs, even when it is grammatically incorrect to do so. And doing so because it's important to someone else, because someone else's identity is at stake. Know when it is time to be that Samaritan, that stranger in the land, but also when you're the person in the ditch, 
because we all have a moment when we felt unwelcome, and we will all have moments in the future when we don't feel like we fit in. We who are part of that, those oppressed communities need to seek out those places where we can be kept safe where we can occupy shelter from the harshness of a culture that wants to beat us down, and people like the priest and the Levite in the reading who will not show us mercy. We need to know the Samaritan in our midst because they are there and we can use them for harbor. Because the reality is, my friends, that this culture might not give us all the power we need, but this world was made for all of us. This world is grateful to have each and every one of us. It is a blessing that you're here. It is a blessing that we are here. Perhaps if we see each other as blessings to this world, rather than just committee members, church leaders, social action organizers, people of color, men, women, we can start to be allies to one another. We can assume that we are blessings to this world. We have a responsibility to lift up and care for our neighbor when they feel beaten down. Know when it is time to be the Samaritan, but also when you are the person in the ditch. Treat the person next to you as if they were a blessing to this world. Be an ally. May it be so.